And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Yeah, well, folks, now we're talking. Now we're talking. There you have it. Yet another fine introduction by our great friend, the great Larry Babb, a special announcer for a very special day as we are broadcasting to you live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California on none other than Christmas Day. That's right, folks. It's December 25th. I am your host, David Steele, and we are bringing you a very special, very unique episode as a way of saying thanks to all of our wonderful listeners out there who are supporting our show and supporting the work that the American Hot Rod Foundation is doing in general. So think of this as a little, it's a little listener Christmas present, um, if you will. So today, we're going to listen to a recording of an interview done in 1956 with someone who has probably honestly never been more in the public eye than he is right now, and that is the late, great Carol Shelby. Now, what makes this so special, this interview that we're going to play, is the fact that if there is a recording of Shelby being interviewed in an, at an earlier time in his life or career, uh, we're not aware of it. In fact, I reached out to a, a good friend of mine who is a leading Shelby expert to tell him about the recent discovery of this interview, and he he basically said the same thing. He said, well, you know, there are some print interviews, plenty of print interviews, I'm sure, that, that were published on Shelby in the mid-50s, but to his knowledge, no audio recordings of him from that era that he knows of or that he's ever heard of. So we feel incredibly lucky to have found this recording and even more lucky that we're able to share this pretty fascinating look into a young Carol Shelby with our broadcast listeners. And in case you're wondering, I discovered this recording about two months ago after collecting a large amount of historic materials from one of the most wonderful people I've, I've met in a long time. Her name is Linda McAvoy, and she is the better half of the late sports car racer historian and owner of Moss Motors, Al Moss. Now, Al collected a lot of material over his lifetime, and I'm happy to say that we're making our way through the process of scanning and digitizing his photos, as well as transferring and digitizing his truly incredible home movies. And we've come up with, you know, many mind-blowing bits and pieces and artifacts. And in fact, if you're a follower of the, of the American Hot Rod Foundation on social media, you would have already been seeing some of the amazing images that we're sharing with you from Al's collection. He was the real deal, hardcore enthusiast from day one, from a from very young age, 
And he loved every conceivable form of motorsport, but just happened to make his living with sports cars. Now, that said, he did buy an MGTC brand new and he raced it and he kept it for his entire life. So apparently sports cars were, were pretty near and dear to him. But that said, Linda has graced us with access to this wonderful collection and we couldn't be happier to have the job of preserving all of Al's work for future generations and for his family. He he loved it all and we could never thank him enough for the amount of documenting he did, uh, including the proper storage of this recording you're about to hear. This 1956 interview was performed by a journalist named Johnny Marr, and uh, no, he did not play guitar for the Smiths, in case anyone's wondering. Uh, no, whoever this Johnny Marr was, he was definitely curious about this new, you know, relatively new form of motorsport that was getting some attention and some traction in the United States after World War II, which was called automobile road racing. And the subject he chose to speak with about this was a 33-year-old Carol Shelby. And this uh, definitely brought him closer to the action and, you know, allowed him to kind of see and hear about what the ins and outs of the sport were, according to Shelby at that time. And, you know, now remember, this is Shelby when he was a budding driver. This is something that a lot of people, well, a lot of people actually don't even know about Shelby as a driver, but a lot of people who do understand this, don't. they don't really remember that, which is incredible because he was a very serious driver. Um, and at this time, you know, he, he had no dream of someday selling a car with his own name on it. Uh, there was there were no ideas about fame and fortune. He was just a guy trying to learn how to drive better and faster and figure out how to compete with the European fancy dance. And, uh, you know, little did he know what lie ahead. I mean, he could have never believed or would have never believed, I'm sure, that three years after the time of this interview, he would win the 24 Hours of Le Mans, co-driving for... Uh, Aston Martin with Roy Salvadori. I mean, just phenomenal stuff for a quote-unquote chicken farmer from Texas. But uh, as you'll hear, based on the attitude expressed here regarding the sport as a possible profession by Shelby, I'm definitely not picking up from him that he's making plans to take over the world. But that said, it very well may be that you know, that was part of the strategy, his personal strategy and his charm that, you know, this Texas salesman was kind of known for. So anyway, listen for yourself. Uh, we'll let you be the judge as we now turn to this latest episode of the Rodcast and our historic 1956 lost interview with the late, great Carol Shelby. These coveralls you wear, or these, uh, 
what do you call them? Uh, Arkansas tuxedo. The Arkansas tuxedo. Um, uh, does this have any particular significance uh, to you? Or well, it's strange how it first came about. The reason I originally started wearing them is because when we race in Texas, a lot of times it'll be 140 degrees a couple of, of feet above the runway on the airports. You take it 110, you know, out in the sun, and then a couple of feet above the concrete, it's very, very hot. So I started wearing them because they were very cool, and just wear them without a shirt. And uh, then it kind of got to be a tradition. As I travel, I take them with me. I'm not particularly superstitious. However, the one race I wanted to win this year that I lost was at Thompson, Connecticut, and the airline had lost my coveralls that particular time, that particular weekend. <laughs> so I just stick with them, whether it's superstition or not. <laughs> are drivers, by and large, a superstitious lot? Yes, I think uh, most of them are. They have their own little peculiarities about something. Do any of the... Um Name drivers in, in, in sports car, car or Grand Prix racing have any of uh, uh, these superstitions that you can uh, tell us about? No, it's not near as prevalent as Europe as it is a dirt track racing in this country. I don't know of any peculiarities or superstitions that any of the boys over there have. I'm sure that they have have some. They're all different. Hawthorne has his bow tie. Yes. Uh -huh. The only other one I have is my St. Christopher that I've worn in all my races and uh, my old overalls. You have several pairs of those overalls? No. Nope. One pair? No, I bought me another pair out on the soft flats and wanted to take some movies and I forgot to bring them with me and I had to buy another pair, but I've never worn them in a race. It's always been the same old worn out pair. They're getting a little frayed. I don't know what I'm going to do. After another three or four races, I think they've been in something over a hundred races now. We won about 88 of them. What kind of footwear do you wear? I wear an asbestos shoe uh, furnished by the Mentex brake lining people from England so your feet don't get hot at all. It has a steel plate in it, so when you press on the brakes real hard, you, your uh, ball of your foot doesn't get so tired. For a big race, a, a race that involves a good many hours of driving, uh, do you not eat? Do you eat lightly? What, what, do you, what do you just, how do you feel? I usually eat breakfast and uh, don't eat anything on the day of the race. Maybe a light sandwich, just Coke, some water. I find that I'm a little sluggish if I eat heavily on the day of the race. you carry anything in the car? Not usually. Sometimes uh, in, a, in a very long race, you, I carry a uh, lemon juice uh, spiked with glucose. Lemon juice uh, kind of cures your thirst. Uh, stick cotton in your mouth, takes that out, and the glucose gives you a little pep. Mm. Master and Gregory, I see, has him some glucose candy now that he's using. How do you how do you manage to drink in, a, in an open car with a wind? Well, you have a little uh, bracket on the door that you set the aluminum flask in and have a tube with a little clip on it that you just slip in and out very quickly. And when you're going down the straight, you can take this tube and take a sip and put it right back. It takes very little time. Of course, you have to be on the straightaway to do it. Mm. Do you wear gloves? Yes. Mm -hmm. What kind? Uh, Doe skin. 
pair of gloves usually last about three races. And got calluses clear to the bone all over the left hand, which in the Ferrari is the one you shift with. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your driving technique? Well, my driving technique is all my own. A lot of people try to follow someone else, but uh, I've never tried to uh, copy anyone else's style at all. I can't say that I have any technique similar to uh, anyone else. I think that I'm more or less a conservative driver. I hope that I'm not from what I consider the wild school. I think that if I did get myself in that situation, that I'd quit. I don't care to be a dead hero. <laughs> Specifically, um, in what ways does your technique, say, differ from someone else's, uh, let's say, Sterling Moss? Well, I really couldn't say. I think most of the drivers that make a lot of races and are fairly successful, so close there's maybe a second difference and maybe 20 drivers will go out to qualify for a race there'll be t uh, one second difference in all those 20 on most of the courses some courses uh, maybe Fangio and Moss will be a couple of seconds faster than most of the others on the slow turns I'd say that there's absolutely no difference between Moss, Fangio and uh, than the average run-of-the-mill drivers, which I consider myself in. On a fast turn, they can go to a course and pick it up very quickly, where it takes, I know myself, four or five practice laps, five or six, to, uh, to get anywhere near like as fast as they're going. And they can do it consistently for two or three hours where uh, it takes much more concentration for me to go as fast as it does those boys and consequently I'll slow down a little bit due to my mental condition after a couple of hours. I wouldn't say that, I couldn't say exactly what difference there is in the techniques between Moss and myself or Fangio and Moss there's definitely a difference there, and I can see it when I'm out watching those two, but as to what it is, I couldn't tell you. The main thing is practice, practice, and practice on all different kind of courses all over the world, different kind of cars under different conditions. Just like any business or anything else, the more experience you have, the, the better off you are. After you once have the determination to see how far you can go in it, then you got to work at it. How old are you, Tom? Thirty-three. How did you get into uh, into racing? I've been interested in racing all my life. When I was very small, my father used to carry me to all the races. He was interested in them. And uh, I did uh, a little bit of racing uh, for about ten years. Then I went to a sport car race with a friend of mine in 1952 and uh, drove his MG and it got into my blood finally got to interfering with my business so much that I just started racing all the time so 
At the time, I was raising chickens. I was a chicken farmer down in Texas, and the chicken business wasn't too good anyway, so I didn't complain too much. <laughs> <laughs> your father, you say your family, your father was interested in racing? Well, at that particular time, yes. Uh, the only automobile racing we had were on the half-mile dirt tracks. That was back during the Depression, and uh, we, there was no such thing as road racing in this country at that particular time. It had gone out about 10 years before, and uh, I, did, I hardly knew that there was such a thing as road racing until about four or five years ago. Of course, since then, it's grown tremendously in popularity. And, mm. So what was your first race in sports cars? Uh, it was in Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, it was in a little MGTC. And I won that race, and uh, a couple of weeks later I went to another race in Oklahoma and drove a Jaguar and won that race. And uh, a friend of mine had an Allard with a Cadillac engine, and I started driving his car and won three or four races in it and was selected on the team to go to South America to represent the United States and run for the Kimberly Cup. Four American cars ran against four Argentines. And I uh, carried this Allard down there and was lucky in the only car that finished in 10th place, but we still won the Cup. And from South America, I met the Aston Martin people and they asked me to come to Europe and drive with them. I went over there and made four or five races. And from there to the Salt Flats and set some records with Healy in the Austin Healy, 24-hour records. And then they invited me to drive in Mexico with them. Well, I got a little carried away with myself and tried to move a mountain with an Austin Healy. <laughs> and was quite unsuccessful in that broke my arm, cut myself up a little bit. Then I didn't get to go to Europe the next year. I had uh, until about uh, August because I had to have a series of operations on my arm and so forth. I ran in Sebring, a bunch of races over here. And then went to Europe and only made three or four races over there. And couldn't make my mind up whether to go to Europe or uh, stay in this country because I've never raced in this country very much. But this year I've spent in the United States altogether. Probably will race in the States till about June when I intend to go to Europe and probably stay a year, year and a half. What about your time with Aston Martin? How did that come on? Well, I enjoy it very much because I was under the guiding hand of John Wire, who I probably have more respect for than any man in racing. I think that he's absolutely brilliant. And in that he designed the Aston Martin car, the racing cars. He is was the racing team manager at the time and had the responsibility of the whole thing from taking care of the drivers to designing the cars, the maintenance, which probably very few people realize it, but racing is a big business in Europe. And uh, I was way down on the team. I think I was about third man in the four or five races I ran in. I did fairly well. I was second at Aintree, third at Silverstone, fifth at the richest race in Europe, which is at Monza every year. Had bad luck at Le Mans. Going around the corner one night about 125 miles an hour and thought that 
I had a flat tire. I was very close to the pits, so I pulled into the pits. They looked at the tire and saw it wasn't flat and jumped, jacked the front of the car up. The wheel fell off. The axle had broken. <laughs> Who else was on the team with you at that point? That particular time, Reg Parnell, Peter Collins, Roy Salvadori, and myself. What Reg Parnell as a driver? <clears throat> well, he was the old man of the team. He's been racing since the early 30s, and uh, his judgment is very much respected. He kind of left it to the young boys to get out and really have a goal, but when the time came, if something happened to them, he's still today capable of getting out and going with practically anyone. Since uh, that time, he's been made uh, team manager since John Wire has been moved up to uh, the general manager of the Aston Martin to production the whole works. Have you ever driven any Grand Prix? Yes, I drove for the Maserati factory uh, one race last year in Syracuse and Sicily. And when I go back in June, I'll probably be driving Formula One altogether for Maserati. I'm going to Indianapolis in May, and therefore won't be able to go to uh, India to go to Europe until uh, June. What are you driving in Indianapolis? A new Curtis chassis with an Offenhauser engine, just plain vanilla. I don't care to experiment at Indianapolis. <laughs> Have you driven in Indianapolis before? No, I've never driven there. I've wanted to. But as you know, the Sport Car Club of America is amateur, and I didn't want to lose my amateur standing because I like road racing so much. Maybe something can be worked out this year so I can... What about this whole race? business of amateur and professionals? Uh, very <clears throat> profound question. Yes. Exciting. Well... I think the Sport Car Club of America has done a wonderful job. It was founded as an amateur organization. It's grown from two or three hundred to approximately eight thousand members. They've learned a lot about putting on races. As you know, road racing is a very expensive operation due to the length of the road. It takes so many people. It takes thousands and thousands of man hours preparing for a race getting all the turn marshals and it takes probably 15 times as many people to organize and put on as track racing. So I hear a lot of people advocating uh, that the sport would go forward if uh, they turn professional. I think that eventually there, there is a place in uh, America for professional road racing. But it's not large enough generally to be profitable for the, for the promoter. Therefore, we have all these volunteer workers who work because it is an amateur sport and work endless hours to put the races on. If you had to pay all those people, which you would have to do in professional racing, I don't think it's practical in this country right at the present time. Personally, I'd like to see it professional, but it's just not feasible at this time. Of course, that's a very controversial subject, and <laughs> these Europeans are always amazed when they come over here and see the way these people go racing, and when you tell them that there's no prize money, they just nearly flip. Well, another controversial subject, um, yourself excluded. Yeah. How do you rate the American drivers? Well, I think that in America, at the particular time we have some very, very fine drivers. <clears throat> As you know, 
with the club strictly amateur, the boys that that could be very good, so many of them don't have an opportunity to drive and get in good equipment. That's one drawback to the amateur system. I think that there are seven or eight drivers in America, give them the proper equipment and the training as they receive in England and the rest of Europe, could go right to the top. I wish that these people could go to Europe and get some experience, but it's financially impossible for a lot of them. I know it's been a great strain on me to go to Europe to try to get experience. I think that eventually we'll, some of the finest road racing people in the world will come from America. you think of anybody in particular? Oh, yes. Let's see. It's Phil Hill and Walt Hansgen, John Fitch, who has been over there. Of course, Maston Gregory has spent a lot of time over there and shown that he can go right with the Europeans. It's very difficult for an American to go over there and get on a factory team because they're very nationalistic, the same as we would be. I imagine if some of the American companies get into the building of race cars, they will want American drivers also as far as, as possible. So it's it's very difficult for an American to get on a factory team, which you have to do to get the proper experience. No individual owned car is going to compete with the factories because the cars are changed from week to week. And I don't know of any Americans that are going over there and uh, buy a car every two or three weeks, which you would have to do. And naturally, there's, there's the prize money, which has... It's very important. That's one way that the factory teams keep uh, operating off their prize money, and they are not going to uh, let any individual. For instance, <clears throat> if you're driving a Ferrari owned by an individual and running against the factory, the factory is going to try just as hard to beat you as if you were driving some other type of automobile because they want the prize money. It's a very difficult thing for an American to go over there and get the proper experience and the proper training and team tactics and so forth. And another reason is you go, if you go, no matter how fast you go and how good you are, driving for a team is so entirely different than driving uh, for an individual. For instance, you follow team orders explicitly and you may, uh, well, there's no may about it, you'll definitely have to sit back and go fairly slowly. So if the boys that are out front, the lead drivers, blow up, they can take your car. You have to never go fast enough to take a chance on blowing your car up. So that's another uh, reason that it's a four or five year proposition before you can possibly get to the top in Europe. What kind of tactics uh, are used by a team in, in European racing? Well, we'll just take an example. Say in uh, one of the major Grand Prix, Ferrari will probably have four cars. Maserati will have four cars. As they've been the contenders last year, uh, they will take two of, each will take two of the cars and give the drivers no orders whatsoever except do their best to stay in front. And if the other, if one or the other is in front, well, the one that's behind will do everything they can to get by, hoping to blow their cars up. Then they have two cars laying back 
if their cars uh, do disintegrate on them, then they'll have the two cars that they can take the third and fourth members of the team out and put the two lead drivers in into those cars. That's one form of tactics. Uh, usually in a Grand Prix, it has to be over 300 miles. And they don't have to uh, refuel or change tires. In a 12 or 24 hour race, uh, entirely different tactics are used. You never send over one car out, or usually don't, to go as fast as they can possibly go because a, no car has been built that I know of to take the absolute maximum for 24 hours, such as a race at Le Mans. However, you will set a, a very high average speed usually for one car and then several seconds a lap slower average for the cars that uh, that you expect to go the distance. Therefore, you, it's practically certain that you'll have to sacrifice the fast car. What do you think about driving in the rain? Bother you? No, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I'd never driven in the rain but once in the States before I went to Europe. And I'd always heard how fast they go over there. And I got to Aintree, the first race ever held in the famous uh, Aintree horse track. And it was just pouring with rain. And I knew very few people and was scared to death of the rain. And I got out there and ran second, a fairly close second. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And the whole year that I was in Europe, Every race I ran in, it poured with rain sometime or the other that year. <laughs> so I got pretty used to it. And actually, I like the rain now. How do lap times in the rain compare with dry track? That's according to uh, the surfaces on the different courses. Some courses get slick, some it doesn't bother too much. Generally speaking, uh, on a three-mile track, lap times slow down five or six seconds would be my guess. That's just Just taking all tracks into consideration. Of course, everyone asks you how you drive in the rain. Well, that's probably just the simplest thing in the world. You just slow down. And that's all. You just don't take any chances. Pardon? Doesn't sound simple to me. <laughs> in this business of team tactics, I'm getting back to it for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, is there any classic difference uh, that you've seen between the general tactics used by, say, one one team, one company as opposed to another company? Or is it generally are the British more conservative, or are they more aggressive than the Italians in their team tactics? Or is it basically the same kind of tactics for all teams? It's basically the same. The only great dis uh, difference that I've seen is are the tactics that the Mercedes team use. Their cars were so much faster than everyone else and so utterly reliable that they just sent all four cars out and let them go as fast as they wanted to. The only uh, thing that they would have said is that the lead driver would always stay in front, which was Fangio uh, when the last uh, couple of years when they competed. The other teams are very much very similar. Is there, a, is there a split between, uh, say, even a social split between drivers, mechanics? Yes, there is definitely in Europe. Mm -hmm. Is there one between drivers and managers? Or is the relationship fairly close? Yes, you have three three planes there usually. The drivers are usually the prima donnas of the outfit, and they do everything to make them comfortable, and also everything they can do to make sure that they get in bed early. 
have their Gestapo out. <laughs> On the whole, it's a wonderful life that the driver leads, though. He has the very finest of food, the very finest of accommodations. Anything that he wants changed about the cars usually changed immediately. They realize that you'd have to have some idiosyncrasies and be a little peculiar or you wouldn't be driving in the first place. And all of the uh, team managers go along with you very well, cooperate every way that they can to make you, make you comfortable and happy. Of course, then in a lot of teams, you have uh, different drivers who are exactly opposite personalities who don't get along and uh, have a little bickering amongst each other, but it's usually, not in all cases, but it's usually forgotten when you get on the racetrack. Because in a team you have orders and if you don't follow them you just automatically kicked off of it. For instance, I think the two great Italian drivers, Musso and Costellati this year, didn't particularly, were in love with each other. and. Uh, Along the early part of the season, they didn't exactly follow orders and would get out and have a dice with each other when they weren't supposed to. And I was reading where Mr. Ferrari made a statement that uh, they'll either follow team orders and not race against each other or they'll both be put off the team. And that's the attitude that, uh, that has to be followed in team racing. No matter whether the although they're probably the two greatest Italian drivers of the present era, they just won't put up with any foolishness like that. If you don't follow team orders, you're out. How'd you come to driving Ferraris? <clears throat> well, it's just kind of natural. Ferraris, in my estimation, for the last four or five years, have been by far the most suitable automobile for our American courses. And Mr. Ferrari is probably the only man left from the old school. He doesn't care about uh, building cars for sale. His main interest is building his cars and racing them. And as far as I know, he's the only company that sells cars that are as good as his factory cars at the time that they're manufactured. And therefore, there's there several other companies that do that now. But at the time, he got a big jump on everyone by building the same cars that he was that he was racing for sale in America. And of course, it's so many many uh, touring automobiles for him. That's the reason for racing in Europe. There's such a tremendous amount of interest. It's just like baseball in America. But the cars that do well in the races, their sales go up tremendously. Every, t every year when a car is successful, well, their sales go up accordingly. I see now that the Detroit manufacturers are getting into the same deal. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Um, what do you think the hopes are for an American, a good American car? Well, I really don't know much about it. I know that they've been racing for the last couple of years, and my understanding is that a couple of the companies are going to get in it seriously and possibly uh, try to build a sport car that will compete on European standards. Of course, they haven't done that yet, but they haven't been in it very long. I think the Chevrolet Corvette has made tremendous strides in that direction.
and I hope that the other companies follow in the future. We asked you about American drivers before. Mm -hmm. How do you rate the European drivers? Well, my opinions changed there the last few months. That's another controversial subject, but I think that up until the last six months, Fangio was, was without a doubt the finest driver in the world in race cars. For the last year or so, Moss, I think, has been as fast as Fangio in sport cars. I think at the present time, uh, Sterling is without a doubt the finest driver in all categories in the world, sport and Grand Prix cars. Uh, after that, it's very hard to say because there are a great number of drivers that are grouped in the group right under Sterling, I think you have, without uh, regard to uh, numerical order, I think you have uh, Peter Collins, Jean Barra, uh, Mousseau, and then uh, following that you have probably 30 drivers, 15 or 30 drivers that are very, very good. It would be impossible to classify them. But I think, without a doubt, Sterling's the finest driver in the world now. He's certainly the most serious. He's, he, in my estimation, in the beginning, he wasn't the most natural driver in the world, but he's worked much harder than anyone else, and he's so serious about it. He's constantly on his toes and thinking in a race car, where many, many people are just natural drivers and get out and go. Well, he had the natural ability, plus the tremendous amount of enthusiasm and ambition to reach the top. I think that's paid off. I think natural ability is a great thing. But I think that if a person doesn't have quite have the natural ability natural ability that others do, then it's still possible for him to reach the top. Well I wouldn't say because uh that's such a gamble. I mean your equipment this it isn't like baseball or football or something where uh it's strictly up to the individual. It's a team proposition. Uh, many times I've seen uh, people who weren't such good drivers be with the right team in the right year and do very, very well. Where if, if the situation had been reversed, they would probably have done nothing that year. Sterling, I understand, is going to drive a British car this year, the Van Wall, which is very fast, but it's very controversial as to the strength of it, whether it will take the grind or not. I think, given a choice of any car that he wanted to drive in any race, that he would undoubtedly be uh, the world's champion. I think that from the talk that I had with Fangio the other day that a lot of his enthusiasm is gone. After all, you win the World's Championship four times, three times in a row. What else is there to do? I think he would like to run Indianapolis, and, and that's about it. What do you think his chances are at Indianapolis? I don't know. It's entirely <clears throat> different race in a certain way, and in another way, if you can drive a race car, I think you can drive it anywhere regardless of the course. If you're well-rounded enough to win the world's championship four times, I can't see where, where it would make any difference on any type of circuit in the world. He was a champion of the Argentine when they'd take off from the very tip of South America and run to Peru and back nine and ten days at a time, which is very 
similar to uh, the races that we used to have in this country 40 years ago when he was champion there. He went to Europe. Two years after he went to Europe, he was world's champion. So what can you say? He's got to do well at Indianapolis. How about yourself? You, you aiming to the world's championship? I haven't made my mind up now. It just started out strictly as a hobby. You know, it's purely amateur in this country. And I have a family, three children, and uh, I haven't made my mind up. I, I want to see how far I can go. But I'll probably make my mind up within the next six months whether to turn to it very seriously or uh, toward pointing toward the world's championship or to just rock along and have some fun out of it. What are your wife's feelings about on this subject? Well, at first, she was slightly against it. She uh, didn't say much about it. Then I started winning some races. She started to learn more about the sport, became interested in it, and now she's just wonderful about it. Gives me no static whatsoever. <laughs> the only bad part, I feel very bad traveling and being away from the family so much. You ever take them with you? Yes, my wife has gone to a lot of races with me this year. Never my children. It's kind of soft pedal around home. <laughs> you have any young young males? Yes, I have a boy nine, a boy ten, and a little girl twelve. You're gonna have a hard time holding them down when they're about six, seven more years old, and you're gonna have to get yeah. them something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll get interested in football. <laughs> I'm rather interested in this uh, this business of the women uh, behind the men in, in racing. Uh, in general, are do most of the wives of the great drivers, American and European, do they have the same feeling your wife does, or is there are there any of the women who are uh, really terribly worried and, and, and make it known? Well, a lot of them do. I think that there have been many great race drivers if uh, their wives had been uh, more interested in racing and not so fearful of the danger of it as they always seem to think they're going to get killed in the next race. But uh, most of the great drivers are single men. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. I know that Fangio is probably the boy that's at the very top now that's married. Sterling, Peter Collins. Well, now there's Patago. He's married. His wife has a wonderful attitude toward racing. But most of them are single. We mentioned the um, you know, this factor of danger, this, the women's reaction to danger. What is your own feeling about the dangers involved in sports car racing? Well, to me, that's what makes it so interesting and such a challenge. It comes down to you do or you don't. You see all types of drivers. Some of them are very wild and don't seem to care whether they have a crack up or not. All the world's great drivers stay on the courses pretty constantly. If they didn't, well, they wouldn't be here very long. I don't think it's so dangerous, personally. Of course, everyone disagrees. I come from the conservative school of driving, where you I don't think you can win every race you get into. You try, but I think if you drive with your head, you can stay on the course and do quite well at the same time. 
you might not win so many races as the as the charger but at least you'll be around a long time to enjoy it unless you just have very bad luck some something fall off the car it's not near as dangerous as most people think just common sense just like any other business your ins and outs to it and the harder you study and the harder the harder you work I think the farther you get in it it's certainly not something for a scatterbrained daredevil I think you'll find less of them in racing you'll probably find more conservative people that are race drivers than anything else because they know that the element of danger is there and you're constantly battling it and trying to take that faction out of it as far as possible What about the drivers who um, who have stated that to them the great thrill is the closeness of death? Well, I don't know. That's not my feeling toward it. I don't think that uh, they absolutely mean the closeness to death because I don't think that any of them uh, want to see how close they can get. My thrill is winning a race and never coming anywhere near getting in trouble. Not the closeness, but winning the race and staying as far away from it as you can. Why are you uh, an automobile racer? Well, as, <clears throat> as I say before, I've always been interested in racing. I've loved it since I was a child. The reason that I'm in it, the reason I chose it for a sport and think it's the greatest in the world is the fact that I think there is an element of danger in it and that it really shows up the sportsmanship more than any other sport whether you are a true sportsman I think it brings out courage I think it brings out sportsmanship and all the elements that that uh, any sport brings out I think that automobile racing brings out the highest qualities the highest qualities of all sports well in my opinion automobile racing brings out most of the qualities to be desired in any sportsman courage sportsmanship being able to uh, keep a level head in an emergency you've got to think constantly and above all it takes absolute concentration if you ever let up for a moment if you're really going fast in the, in the heat of the race where you're going to run off the road something's going to happen so therefore in my opinion it's the most demanding of any sport got to get stay in good physical mental condition if your mental attitude isn't very good in other words to win you've got to have the perfect mental attitude every time when you go to a race if you're not mentally up for it you're not going to win no matter what car you have you mentioned sportsmanship <clears throat> uh, I wonder are does sportsmanship prevail out of choice or out of necessity? Well, I think both. 
Well, for instance, in the race yesterday when Fawn and I were running around together constantly, uh, we were smiling at each other, waving at each other. There's no animosity uh, in big-time racing, or very little anyway. Once in a while, two drivers will get hacked with each other for some reason, but I've never in any sport seen what you might call the brotherly love and the respect for the other person that you have in automobile racing. You're absolutely outside of two or three drivers that I know of that are near the top, not going to do anything that would get someone else in serious trouble. You go out of your way to help them fix their car, give them parts if, you, if they need it, and when you're on the track, when you're really having a goal with each other and doing everything you can, you never try to run the other one off the course, which a lot of people seem to think in all the movies uh, play up. But that just doesn't happen. If that happens, uh, the other drive, the word gets around and uh, that person will find himself boxed in and might be off the course. So. It just never happens. If you had to put your finger on one characteristic of personality of, uh, well, if you had to put your finger on one, one characteristic of personality, what would you say was the most important characteristic to make a great driver? A really great driver, conservatism. That sounds strange. But the urge is always there to go faster and faster, and that's the urge that you have to uh, conquer before you'll ever be great. In other words, you have to learn how fast you can go and not go over it. As, you, as all of us already know, that's the reason 90% of the accidents is trying to go too fast. And there's certain there's physical laws that you have to... Uh, retain and not go beyond or you're going off in the boondocks. I gather that's the characteristic you feel that is most uh, predominant in Fangio. Yes. Now you were American champion this year, weren't you? <coughs> well, there's actually no American champion. Uh, I won more races than anyone else. I competed in 40 races and won 36. But there's Sport Car Club of America doesn't name a champion, actually. It's champion of each class. I, I drove various cars in various classes all year, so I don't know uh, even how many points I actually did have. Well, you come out to be pretty near top man. Somewhere near the top, if I wasn't. <laughs> how, how does this help you in, in bargaining for a seat on a Grand Prix team in Europe? Well, it helped tremendously. They don't know much about American drivers because very few have been over there. A lot of them have been boys that can afford to go, that uh, go over there for the strictly the fun of racing. And the Europeans are of the opinion that any Americans are actually very serious about racing. I hope that they're changing their mind about that and will give some of us a chance to, uh, to drive for them. How, how did you get your seat in Maserati? Did they call you up? Or? Yes, I took a trip over there and uh, and talked to them. And since I'd driven for them last year, well, I made the deal with them for this year. Did you say you'd driven a Grand Prix car for Maserati? Yes, I drove the Grand Prix of uh, Syracuse in Sicily last year.
is the social scene between races or at races, very much like you just say down here in Nassau, where there are five or six cocktail parties where you are faded, wine, dined, as uh, I say, uh, a constant uh, repeating pattern that you run into no matter where you go? Uh, yes, you have, at every, every large race, you have a series of cocktail parties and dinners that different people are giving. The drivers are always invited. Usually the only uh, party that I, that I myself, and speaking for some of the other drivers, is the, the cocktail party in honor of the drivers that they always give. The others, uh, you just simply don't have time to uh, get around to all of them. Then the uh, victory dinner and the, the uh, presentation of trophies and money as it is in Europe. <laughs> You always make that, but usually uh, you leave the social life up to uh, the other people in the organization rather than the drivers, because we all try to get to bed early and you have to live clean or you just run out of gas about halfway through every race. Now most of the drivers, most of the good drivers, um, treat their bodies in the same way that a um, baseball player, football player, a top athlete would? Absolutely, only more so. No drinking, no staying up. No. The ones that don't, don't stay in it very long. Now, I can't think of one exception. I can't think of one single exception where a person doesn't live clean and has ever gotten to the top and stayed there. What about your obligations to the public? Do you feel any the way a baseball player or a movie star always has to be? keep things strictly above board or even make certain concessions to the public opinion? Yes, I think so. I think that anyone in the sporting world has got to keep that in consideration. And I feel that the public is are the people that are paying the fare and making it possible to have racing. I don't think they particularly interfere with uh, with a race driver. I think you should always be conscious of the fact that they are paying the way. Uh, do you feel that the driver has an obligation to the public or not? No. I definitely don't. But if a track is dangerous, and I actually didn't want to drive it if I felt that something serious might happen, I don't think that a driver is responsible to the public then. I think that the promoter is the one that uh, should be held to blame for that, the people that are putting the races on. You would cancel out of a, out of a race even though the promoter felt it was safe, and, and but you felt it weren't safe? I, I would. The situation has never arisen. Uh, I've been to many courses where I thought something could happen, but I'll decide myself to go ahead and race for my sake, not for the public. Uh, do, you, um, do you personally engage in any other sports? I used to play a lot of golf. I've always been interested in all sports, but I've about given it up now. And this takes just about all my time. I've had about five or six weekends off this year from this. A lot of the fellows um, are adept, quite adept at other sports. Mm -hmm. Do you think this helps them uh, in their in their racing at all? Just, uh... Yes, I think if you're good in a number of sports, it definitely points to a very good uh, uh, 
reaction uh, coordination coordination and uh, you have to have uh, good coordination to drive a race car and I think that's probably the reason I used to play pretty good golf around the park and uh, any sport that I took up got serious about I'm not a world beater but got on fairly quickly with it Fawn is uh, had never done much bobsledding he won something in the Olympics I think he was a great horseman. Probably take up tennis and he'd be very good at it. <laughs> or any other sport. He has a great competitive spirit too, which I think you have to have in automobile racing. Charge, charge, charge. Constantly. <laughs> Do you have any interest in or love for just cars? Oh, yes. Yeah, nearly every car that I've driven in quite a few races I've become very sentimental about and uh, try to keep up with all the various cars that I've driven different places except for one of the factory which you can never keep up with because they switch back and forth so quickly. Would you say this, it was an asset to have a sentimental attachment for a car? No, I wouldn't say it's an asset. I'm not, I don't have sentimental uh, attachments to them to the point that I don't want to uh, improve myself with a better car. But I'd, if I ever stop anywhere long enough, settle down long enough, I'd like to get me an antique car of some kind and restore it. Something similar to Phil Hill has done with that Pierce era of his. It's been in the family for years and years. He took it down every nut and bolt out of it rebuilt it and won many concourse the elegance with it and I think that's wonderful it gives him a lot of interest other than race cars that takes about half his time I think when he's not racing just keeping that car clean I think something like that would interest me a slight amount not a great deal I could never prepare a race car pretty good chicken farmer uh, I must not have been. That's I went broke. <laughs> That's the reason I started driving race cars. If and when you ever do quit racing, do you have any ideas where you what you do? Uh, I'll probably stay in the automobile business in some end. I'd like to have a automobile dealership around Dallas somewhere. Of course, that's impossible when you're traveling around as much as I am at the moment. Do you own a car of your own? Yeah, I drive American cars. Chevrolet, man, I see. Well, and there you have it, folks. How about that? Now, if that ain't some good history pouring out to you, then I don't know what is. Many, many thanks to whoever Johnny Marr is or was for having the good sense to recognize an interesting subject when he saw it. Uh, thanks also to the late, great Al Moss for collecting and preserving uh, such wonderful artifacts as this recording and for his lovely better half, Linda McAvoy. She's so awesome. Thank you, Linda, for calling on the American Hot Rod Foundation to assist in the preservation of Al's incredible artifacts. We are, we are flattered and... Uh, and, and we love having the task. Um, 
Special thanks also has to go out to Carol Shelby himself for having not become a car salesman in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and instead, going on to produce some of the finest and most exciting automobiles, or as Carol would say, sport cars, the world will ever, ever know. Now, I usually thank a lot of folks at the end of each episode, but maybe because it's the holidays and it happens to be Christmas Day, this very day, I want to simply thank just the Mamishian family for their incredible and ongoing generosity and for having started the American Hot Rod Foundation to begin with. You know, each day I get to pour over images and documents from the earliest known days of hot rodding and do my part to make sure that these pieces of history are preserved for future generations, you know, to enjoy and to learn from. And the fact that the Mamishians see to it that this project continues on is something that I truly stand in awe of. And the fact that I get to be a part of it is just a dream come true. So I'm happy to say that I have a lot to be thankful for during this 2019 holiday season, but getting to assist in the dream that the Mamishians have of keeping the old flame of hot rodding alive and burning is, well, it's right at the top of my list of good fortune. So on behalf of myself and everyone who tunes into this show episode after episode, thank you, Stephen Carol Mamishian, for all you are doing to save hot rod history. And now, finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please do us a favor, subscribe to it through iTunes or wherever you're listening and rate and review each episode. You'd be surprised how important those comments and ratings can be to the success of this show. Uh, it improves the chances that other folks might find it and might start listening to it and develop a passion for this history. So once again, I am your host, David Steele. It's been a pleasure to bring you this special holiday episode today as a way of saying thanks to all of you for listening to and for supporting the show. And until next time, keep it between the ditches, rubber side up, and we'll see you right here for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.